0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington
1: Correspondent... Major, major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
2: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. Our guest this week... Has been called a modern day Atticus Finch. And if you don't know who Atticus Finch is, you need to read the Harper Lee novel To Kill a Mockingbird or watch the Gregory Peck depiction of Atticus Finch. Read the book, watch the movie, it might well change your life. His name is Doug Jones. He was, for a very brief time, a U.S. senator from Alabama, Democrat, which made him slightly unusual for the times. Before that, he was a U.S. attorney. And we'll talk about the most famous case he prosecuted as a U.S. attorney in just one moment. But you might have seen him in some of the coverage of Ketanji Brown-Jackson's confirmation hearings, an ultimate Senate confirmation to be the first African-American woman ever elevated to the United States Supreme Court. Doug Jones is our guest. Doug, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hey, Major. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: So, tell my audience, Doug, what was for you the most surprising part of the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation process and the most pleasing part?
3: Well, they were probably the same. And I don't want to take anything away from Judge Jackson when I say this, but I knew this was going to be a historic nomination. I knew this was going to be an inspirational nomination. But I will tell you, I was really very pleasantly surprised at how inspirational she as an individual became in this. She was an, is an amazing woman, an amazing jurist, but I also think she really grew more in this process and got stronger as it went on. And to watch that and to get to know her and to see how the country was reacting. You know, when by the time she was confirmed, she had a 66 or something like that percent approval rating. My God, think about that, Major. Who gets that these days? And I think that's a testament to her. So that they're really both the same. I was surprised because I didn't know her, but I didn't realize how inspirational she would become, but certainly pleased at that. It was really a remarkable, um, remarkable run.
2: How did you get involved as being, and this is a silly Washington name applied to the job you performed. Yeah. Washingtonians call it Sherpa, which really has nothing to do with what you actually do Because the Sherpa metaphorically implies having someone climb this very scary mountain and only they know how to do it. Basically you walk around with her, you meet colleagues. She could find the office rooms on her own if she needed to. What is your role and how did you get it?
3: You know, first of all, I, this was not on my radar. Um, I had a feeling that Justice Breyer would retire this spring. Um, when I worked for Senator Hefflin from Alabama on the Senate Judiciary Committee a long time ago, back in 1979 and 1980, Steve Breyer was the chief counsel on the committee, working for Senator Kennedy. And I just felt like all along that he would retire this spring, given the political dynamics in the world. What I didn't really think about was what a role might be for someone like me who's out of government, been out there for a long time. So I'm literally just sitting in my, uh, actually my doctor's office, waiting for my annual physical when I get an email from a reporter saying my name had been bannered around for this. Well, I didn't, I didn't respond, but just sent something to Ron Klain, the chief of staff said, look, I'm not going to respond to this, but you know, I'm here to help however I can. And then things just started rolling very quickly. Um, And by the weekend, we were doing paperwork because I literally had to take a leave of absence from my law firm and uh, the Center for American Progress to do this. And it was on board within a week or so. You know, the role is to do more than just simply help escort. Um, We really you're, you're absolutely right. Between the White House staff and the judge herself, she can find her way in and out of the offices. But what I think I I provided to her was an insight as to each senator. I served with almost all of the ones that are up there, not all of them, but kept up up enough with the ones I didn't that I kind of had an idea where they would be. I kind of knew where they would go politically, um, uh, the concerns that they had, where they stood, and also some personal tidbits, you know, with stories with me, with others, uh, because we did get along, I, you know, I felt like I got along with those guys really well. So it was providing a little bit of that background and a little bit of comfort, I believe, to the judge going in that so much of this was going to be political, not personal, but I thought they would treat her right. And so there was a, an element of just working with her and counseling her, but also helping try to understand she, how she was going to be answering questions about her, her 570 opinions about her judicial philosophy, all of those issues. Um, and, and, and something that didn't, I didn't think about going into it, but I think helped a lot is I'm one of the few people that had been in the Senate in a long time that had really worked in the criminal justice arena. Mm-hmm. I was a prosecutor. I was a defense lawyer. I understood where she was coming from as a judge. And so many on the judiciary committee, in fact, almost all of them, they had never been in a criminal court. They didn't understand that. So I think I helped in that a lot as well.
2: You know, in our industry, Doug, we have a phrase that we call someone who helps in a local jurisdiction or a local place where we're parachuting in for a story. We call them a fixer. They have tremendous local knowledge. They can not only guide us around, but they can answer questions in sort of a local shorthand. Now, if I use the term fixer, people can going to go, like, oh, it's all the fixes, and I don't mean it that way. But it seems like that's one of the things you were like for Katanji Brown Jackson local knowledge based on what your experiences had been.
3: Yeah, I think that that's correct. I know I, I know, in, in this case, the, the term fixer wouldn't be the, the right term. No, exactly. But in terms of what they're doing, absolutely. I mean, that's the spirit you know, of it. And that's the spirit of it. You had been there, you had been involved. I'd gone through two confirmation hearings. Uh, as a senator. uh, I knew these folks. And it was just a way to make sure she understood the lay of the land.
2: So let me ask you a question that I got asked when uh, President Biden didn't announce Ketanji Brown-Jackson, but said his choice would be an African-American woman. I do a fair amount of conversations on radio stations around the country that I'm quite happy to say carry the takeout. And several hosts said, we're not opposed to this idea, but it just feels odd to us that the president would tell the country I'm going to offer the most qualified candidate but I'm going to limit my range of options to African-American women and they said that doesn't seem exactly right to them I'd like you to respond to that from your own vantage point as someone who is a product of the American South who understands the power of representation and you saw firsthand what that representation meant in the context of this nomination process.
3: Yeah, it's a good question. And and for some of those, um, uh, those are well-meaning responses. Those are not racist responses. They're not anything like that. They're just a limiting. And and why would you do that? I get that. I understand that. But I think what they're overlooking, number one, is that, in fact, President Biden not only said he was going to appoint an African-American woman, but an incredibly well-qualified African-American woman. There are a lot of people, Major, that are qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. But out of our 250-year history and out of 115 previous justices, there had never been a black woman. And, and, and we've got a crisis, I believe, in confidence in the Supreme Court right now. That's, that's a whole different podcast, maybe, about what's going on <laughs> mm-hmm. with the Supreme Court and the process to get there. But there's clearly, I think that this president, in his heart of hearts, also believed that the Supreme Court of the United States needs to reflect America. And there are a lot of qualified people to reflect America. And you saw some on the bench, you've seen men, you've seen women, you, you now have Hispanic. But there was one noticeable absence, and it was a conspicuous absence. And I I get it. I understand it. But at the same time, the president is one, as you know, this president is one to put his cards on the table. And he could have easily just gone and, and made this pick. And there wouldn't have been that. But he's one to put his cards on the table. And he wanted people to know that he was wanting to get a Supreme Court that when people in America look up on that bench, they are seeing a reflection of America and going into it. And uh, so I have no problem with the way he approached this. There are a lot of re- the Republican senators did not have a problem with that at all. Senator right. McConnell right. and others, and I have no problem with the way uh, he went about doing this because at the end of the day, there was not. And I get asked this all the time. Even though there were forty-seven Republicans who voted against her, there was not one of them who said she was not well qualified. Not one.
2: Doug, let me stop you right there. That is the voice of Doug Jones, our special guest this week on The Takeout Segment 2, a conversation not only about the Supreme Court, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, but a very famous case Doug Jones prosecuted. I'm Major Garrett, Segment 2 of The Takeout in just one second.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text Pod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text pod to 500, 500 From CBS News, this is The Takeout with
2: Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for sticking with the vibe of this show Doug Jones, you were in the Senate for about three years. Before we get back into the Senate confirmation process, the Supreme Court, because that's not a separate podcast, we're going to deal with it in this one. I'd like your thoughts briefly, because we have focused for the last many, many weeks on the show about Ukraine, your thoughts about it. If you were in the Senate, what might you be advocating for? What do you think the United States ought to prepare itself for? And what more do you think Congress ought to do in this current crisis?
3: You know, that, Major, I, I got to be honest with you, you know, it's something over the last two months I've tried to kind of put aside a mm-hmm. little bit, and I've been picking up more and more. I, I think the world as we knew it, have known it since World War II, has now changed uh, dramatically. And it's not going to go back uh, to anything like we saw earlier, uh, and uh, probably for the rest of at least our lifetimes. Um, p- from my standpoint, uh, I think they need to ratchet up as much as they can with regard to uh, whatever sanctions that they can get. And that is going to have to include figuring out a way to wean Europe away from dependence on Russian energy, whether it's oil, gas, we've got to wean Europe away from that. And that means U.S. is, I believe, going to have to step up. We are an energy independent country right now. A lot of people forget that right now in the terms of high gas prices and inflation that we're seeing. But the fact of the matter is we are energy independent. And we should be doing those kind of things to help get our European uh, friends and allies their inner independence for friends and neighbors instead of depending on Russia. So I think there's going to have to be some hard choices with sanctions and uh, the global economy coming up pretty soon. But I think the more we're seeing with, with the way Putin, who has now backed himself in a corner, I don't know if there's a way out for him except to fight. And what I fear is that the only way he sees a way out of this is to escalate and escalate and escalate. And at some point I I fear that that's going to draw America uh, into a military conflict. And if that happens, it is a far cry from the conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq. This is going to be a major, major piece of um, um, war, conflict, whatever you want to call it. And it's pretty frightening uh, with what's going on right now. But at, at some point, at some point, Major, I think the United States and and our allies have to say enough is enough with regard to the war crimes and the crimes against humanity and the atrocities we see going on against innocent people uh, in Ukraine.
2: That suggests to me what you're saying is we better gird ourselves for the possibility of direct military confrontation with Russia.
3: I think we have to at least gird ourselves. No one wants that. And I am damn sure not advocating that. Uh, But at the same time, we have to be realistic about where we are. And um, what's going on right now is, is truly war crimes. But the fact of the matter is, you're not going to be able to get Putin into a courtroom. And the devastation that's happening right now, somehow, some way, and there's a lot of people working on this. Quite frankly, I think the way that our allies uh, have responded has been very strong, very coordinated, which is really good. Remember, One of the things, and I don't think the president gets enough credit for, uh, is really rallying the European Union and rallying NATO around this common uh, goal of trying to help protect Ukraine and stop this invasion somehow, some way. Um, And I think Joe Biden did that. I think he came into office wanting to make sure that we strengthen our global alliances rather than weaken them.
2: Doug, I want to ask you about a topic you raised in segment one. The confidence level in the Supreme Court, the functionality of the confirmation process. You mentioned, and I want the audience to take this on board because it's important. You worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee for a sitting member of that committee, Hal Heflin. I covered Senator Heflin when I first started covering Congress in the early 1990s. I watched the confirmation process. The first big hearing I covered was Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing. But even though before that, conservatives will tell you, Robert Bork got a very rough handling in the confirmation process. And I don't need to tell you, Doug, both sides have all this bruising on their bodies about the confirmation process. And they have ready narratives to blame each other for who started this and who took it into a new depth Mm -hmm. of political depravity, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone has a, nor- a narrative on this. Everyone is willing tribally to blame the other and absolve themselves. You know, this is true. What is the way out of that?
3: Well, I think it's going to take some integrity among the senators to put that behind. them. I mean, Robert Bork was in like, what, 1985 or 86? I mean, good grief. Um, you know, and, and people you know forget... conservatives
2: will say Brett Kavanaugh. And sure, the... I get that. Yeah.
3: But let's let's start with Bork. OK, mm-hmm. people forget that, number one. People warned President Reagan, do not nominate Robert Bork. He is a divisive figure. He is a controversial figure. Don't go there. We will help you. My boss, Senator Heflin, voted for every one of Ronald Reagan's judicial nominees up until that point. And when a conservative Democrat, a very conservative Democrat from Alabama votes against a judicial nominee of Ronald Reagan, there's a real problem. And the second thing that people forget on it with Bork is that He went down because of Republican votes, not just Democrats. It was a bipartisan effort to sink his nomination. Yes, too many people. When when I was with Judge Jackson, every Republicans and Democrats all wringing their hands about the institution of the Supreme Court and the lack of confidence. And I don't think they fully appreciate that they, in part, have caused that. Mm -hmm. They have made these confirmation processes partisan, clearly partisan, so that whether it was Kavanaugh, whether it was Amy Coney Barrett, but and, and then again, going back, no one to um, Merrick Garland, not even getting a hearing, not even a hearing, much less a vote, not even a hearing. So everyone, there's no one that has clean hands in this from the Senate standpoint. It has been made partisan and folks have to step back. <clears throat> I truly believe, Major, in a different time, in a different place. Katanji Brown Jackson would have gotten 90 plus votes in a different U.S. Senate. She is that not only qualified, but she is clearly not an activist judge, as people are concerned about. But the court has to do some things as well. The media, I think, has to do some things as well. Let's talk about you guys in the media. Right. Every decision right now, every decision that you guys report it's reported about the vote along ideological lines, whether it was Republicans versus Democrats or whatever. And when you have a, a Chief Justice Roberts, it was like, wow, Justice Roberts voted with the liberals. Justice Roberts voted with it. That doesn't help. Just report the decisions. And because and you're reinforcing the public's view about that. The Supreme Court itself, and I've seen the the... the Uh, speeches by Justice Alito, Justice Breyer, and others. Oh, we don't operate in politics. But yet, if you look at the use of the shadow docket right now, where decisions are being made that affect people every day in voting, their ability to vote with redistricting.
2: Right. Doug, Doug for a second, uh, help my audience understand who might not what a shadow docket is.
3: Sure. Think of it this way. Traditionally, The the shadow docket is what is known as an emergency docket. It is when someone who is facing capital punishment, about to be executed, will appeal to the Supreme Court in an emergency petition to say there are things in the lower court that we haven't discussed, stay my execution. That is traditionally the, the number one way for emergency relief. And the Supreme Court will say, sorry, I don't buy it. Or, yes, there's issues that we need to take a little bit look, closer look at. But those are done with either just a one or two line sentence. They're not done with research and briefs. It is simply one thing, and it affects so many. It can affect the capital punishment. That's how that was done. But in the last few years, we have seen that emergency docket being used to stop redistricting proposals, voting rights proposals, any number of things that can affect elections that can affect outcomes, and when that is done, without the benefit of full briefs, without the benefit of even a, an opinion and the transparency of what they were thinking, then people are looking at that as political because most of those end up being either a along those ideological lines that we were talking about with the media. And so the court itself is feeding it into this narrative that they have become a political body because they are using that docket for political purposes and it's a i I think that they need to clean their their own house up a little bit uh, as well
2: more of our fascinating conversation with jug jones on the other side of this break segment three of the takeout i'm major garrett thanks for being with us back in just one second
1: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. Doug Jones is our special guest, former U.S. Senator, former U.S. Attorney, and for a very important period of time this year was the guiding force behind, well, maybe guiding force is too strong a term, but we've already described what he was, the aide-de-camp to Katanji Brown-Jackson in her confirmation process. Doug, tell my audience in the elaborate preparation that you and the White House and others prepared Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson for the confirmation hearings. What questions did you prepare for that you never even got?
3: Wow. I haven't been asked it that way, uh, Major. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, you know, it, you got to remember, we. it's hard to prepare for questions.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I'm an old trial lawyer, and so it's hard to prep witness on particular questions. So you have to prep a witness. On areas of question. These are the things that these senators are going to want to talk about. And I think we had looking at her record, both as a member of the sentencing commission, as a, uh, an, a lawyer with the public defender's office, the Harvard debate team, uh, or not Harvard debate team, but her, her law school and undergraduate career, uh, and her opinions as a district judge, court of appeals judge. We had a number of areas that we knew that there would be questions about. There were certain opinions where she came down on one side or the other. We knew that there would be questions about. There were areas of um, representation of Guantanamo detainees. Mm -hmm. There were areas where she had referenced, um, only by reference, the 1619 Project, but we knew that that was a hot button for Republicans on the Judiciary Committee. So we prepared for those areas and we did a number of things. Initially, we would just literally sit down with briefing books in which the White House counsel staff did an amazing job of, you know, briefing books, three, four inches thick that had all of the issues and references that she may have given uh, on those questions and to try to get her familiar in her own mind. Remember, she's 51 years old. She's been a judge for 10 years. She she's had a career before that. Now her entire life was going to be under a microscope. Well, at some point you tend to forget some of these things, and so we had to go back and relive the Katangi Brown Jackson story with her and pe- peg that into the areas that we knew would be the concerns. The one area that we didn't really see coming until toward the, as we got closer to the confirmation was some concern about her sentencing in the child pornography cases. Uh, Senator Hawley raised those before the hearing, tipped us off to what we're doing. So then we had to start doing a deep dive into those cases, what happened in those cases, uh, and how. And we got very comfortable with those. So it was really those areas. And I think pretty much all the areas of concern that we talked about were there. I think one area that people um, didn't really completely focus on was just her We thought she would. She's been accused of being soft on crime, but we thought that that might be more of just being a public defender as opposed to the individual um, uh, issues involving the Gitmo detainees or her sentences in certain cases.
2: So you have said publicly that most of the questions that came from Republican senators on child pornography sentencing were based on a lack of information. I think the quote is they didn't know what they were talking about. Why do you say that?
3: because they'd never been in one of those hearings before. Uh, they had not sat through a criminal uh, sentencing in federal court. They, did, they clearly did not understand the role of the judge and how the judge goes about fashioning a sentence. Remember, they kept talking about the guidelines, and Senator Hawley kept moving the goalpost because he initially talked about, oh, she's sentenced below the guidelines. Well, then we were able to show that some 80% of federal judges, uh, Republican and Democrat-appointed judges, also sentenced below the federal guidelines, because the guidelines didn't accurately reflect um, how to not create disparities in sentencing. So when that came up, then it was, well, you're not, you're not uh, sentencing according to the, to the uh, prosecutor's recommendation. Well, that's not a judge's role. The judge is not supposed to rubber stamp what a prosecutor does. And, the, and they had failed to understand the role of the probation office. And the probation office works for the judge, and they do an independent investigation, not only just about the facts of the crime, but also about the individual and the factors that have to be considered. The calculations of the guidelines is only one factor, but the defendant and their role in the offense and their history, all of those characteristics come into play. And so that chart that Senator Cruz put up with eight uh, of these cases, he put how she sentenced below the guidelines. In all of the cases, but failed to point out that the government was recommending below guideline sentences in most all of those cases. She they failed to put it up there and said that she sentenced below the prosecutor's recommendation. But what he did put up there was in five of those eight cases, she sentenced exactly what her probation office recommended. In two of those cases, she sentenced above the recommendation. And only in the one case, the Hawkins case, which you heard so much, Mm -hmm. was an outlier. But in that case, you didn't have some middle-aged out guy out there with a camera taking these photographs or buying and selling and trading and using these pictures for currency. You had an 18-year-old kid who was struggling with his identity, his sexual identity, who had been in this business for three months. And she felt like someone like that deserved to, one, go to federal prison, which he did, and then, but deserved to have some ability to make a life for himself outside of that president once he understood the gravity of what he had done. I don't
2: need to tell you, Doug, but when anyone reads in their local newspaper or on a digital platform or hears on local news, child pornography and alarm bells go off. It is one of these areas of life in which everyone's hackles are instantly raised and justifiably yeah, so. Absolutely. There have been those who have said this was a concerted effort to other Ketanji Brown Jackson by associating her with this particular line of questioning it was to almost cancel her or make her appear vaguely repellent by choosing this particular issue and hammering it with such intensity. I would like your thoughts on
3: that. You know, I I think that there may be some truth to that. Quite frankly, I'm a little bit more politically cynical about it. I think it was playing to a QAnon base um, because the whole QAnon is based in part on this worldwide conspiracy of pedophiles. And so I think it was just playing to a base. They had done their homework, they would have seen that this was not outside the norm. This was exactly, she sentenced exactly the way Congress had intended for a judge to exercise some discretion. And what they completely missed was the talks that she gave to each of these defendants at the time, talking about the harm to society that they had created in the, in the crimes that they had committed. So. I think to some extent, in some circles, I would agree with that. But quite frankly, I just also purely believe I'm a pure cynical base, politically cynical, that this was playing to a radical right base that is needed um, by certain uh, members uh, in the Republican Party who want to run for president. They got to solidify that base.
2: That in itself, Doug, seems to me a a kind of astonishing statement that in the Senate confirmation history uh, process, rather, it's now recorded, at least from your vantage point, that a conspiratorial, fringish element of a national party is so important that it must be catered to with this line of questioning. Because that's what you're saying.
3: Yeah, that's where we are. That's where we are. I mean. Look at what's going on, uh, Major. Look what's going on. And, you know, those questions, I, I don't think anybody that watched those hearings could say that those questions were designed to really get an in-depth answer. Those questions were designed to raise money. Those questions were designed to tweet out things and to build up and to shore up a, 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 what I think is a fringe base. And if you can because because if you can shore up the fringe base and you build on that, maybe then you can move a little bit in a different way. So, you know, it's it's a sad state of affairs. But I think that that's, you know, that's from my perspective and where I sat watching that, um, because two, look, these are smart people up sitting up on that dais. And if they had really done their homework and it really had done and looked and understood what she was saying about how judges go about judging and fashioning these sentences. They could have easily backed off of that to say, look, I disagree with you on that. And, I, and I'm not so sure that I can vote for you because of that disagreement. That's fine. But if, but they didn't do that. They continued to hammer that and put her in a position where she is somehow defending child pornography, which absurd, absolutely absurd. This mother, this stalwart, she is, just an amazing individual it's just was an absurd way to go as far as they went
2: that is the voice of doug jones segment four of the takeout
1: in just one second okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road
0: CBS News, this is The Takeout
2: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I've been promising you this entire show that we would delve into the most important case that Doug Jones prosecuted as a U.S. attorney. It was a case that was many years previous. Let me get the date right. On September 15th, 1963, four African-American girls inside the 16th Street Baptist Church were murdered. That bombing so horrified the country that many believe it propelled the nation and its political leaders in Washington to approve the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Two of the people found guilty of that bombing weren't even brought before the bench in a formal way until the early 2000s, and Doug Jones did that. Walk us through that process, Doug. You know, it, it was,
3: um, one, it was an amazing journey for me and the staff that I had that Team that I had to put that together, but you know I was only nine years old in 1963 when that happened, and I will say that there was an amazing investigation that went on at the time. But like so many other homicides, you can't prove every case. The Klan, who was responsible, um, not as an organization but individual members, all of those folks just clammed up, and they couldn't prove a case. The first case was actually tried in 1977. Then Alabama Attorney General Bill Baxley had reopened the case. Prosecuted a guy named Bob Chambliss, known as Dynamite Bob. He was kind of the ringleader in this group. And I will tell you that as a second-year law student here in Birmingham, I went and cut classes uh, to go watch that trial. And I saw uh, great lawyering, which really helped me as a young lawyer. but I also saw what it meant to the, this community to have, bring that justice, to bring what they thought may be some final justice. But they knew there were others. And for the next 24 years, very little had happened. And there's some circumstances that happened in Birmingham with investigations and all in the in 1980s and early 1990s that, that uh, propelled the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office before I got there to actually reopen the case. But when I was sworn in as U.S. Attorney in 1997, the case had been reopened and my staff didn't know um, my association with the families. I'd gotten to know one of the families very well. They didn't know I'd sat and watched that case. Uh, But I knew it was the last roundup. If we did not pursue that case then, it was likely never to get done. And by that time, we'd had other cases. The Medgar Evers case in Mississippi had been prosecuted. You had Vernon Dahmer's uh, death over there. Uh, Sam Bowers was prosecuted. And so now was the right time. And we just set about on a course to try to figure out. We knew that there were only two suspects still alive. Sent about to try to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together that used old pieces of a puzzle, but also trying to come up with some new pieces to fill in those gaps. And we were able to do it. I was really proud. We were indicted a guy named Bobby Frank Cherry, uh, a fellow named Tommy Blanton. We tried those cases separately, but we were able to prove, even though we had no real, the closest thing to a smoking gun that we had major was an old tape recording that was made and used. Uh, at a time when it probably would have never been able to get into evidence, in which Blanton admitted to his then wife, uh, Jean, how he'd been part of the group that was making the bomb and planting the bomb. That's the closest thing we had. Everything else was taking the pieces of the puzzle and moving them around and putting them together so that a modern jury, a, a 21st century jury, that did not come in with the baggage of the 1960s and even the 1970s and the biases and prejudice could judge it fairly and prove beyond a reasonable doubt these uh, two guys' guilt. It was incredibly an um, an amazing journey for me, for my team, and for this community.
2: You use phrases, biases, baggage. Talk to my audience about what that meant in the early 60s. Uh, This bombing was not the first in Birmingham. There'd been many before that, not as lethal. But Birmingham, because of all the underlying racial unrest and tension and friction, was called bombingham at the time. And the FBI had a case, but didn't believe it could prosecute it. Then the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, made what seems to me, Doug, a startling decision. He sealed the files. And even that 1977 prosecution you referred to, the prosecutor said, I wish I'd had all the evidence in those sealed files. I mean, there was a a constraint on justice in that era.
3: There there was, um, and I am no J. Edgar Hoover fan. Okay, I will just tell you, I am no J. Edgar Hoover fan, but I will tell you, and I have said this, and I've said it publicly in Birmingham and elsewhere, he did the right thing by closing the file. Now, he didn't seal the file. He just closed it. Okay. Remember, okay. most criminal investigations remained r- remain confidential uh, and not public.
2: For obvious right, reasons, the, right.
3: The files were there, but I, I, having gone back and looked at the evidence as it existed in the 1960s, and remember, he closed the file in part in 1968, because in federal court, there was only a five-year statute of limitations. After, even if a death had occurred, you could that didn't get changed for civil rights deaths for 20 more years. Gotcha. And so I think he closed it for the right reason in the sense that he did not believe that a jury would convict. I agree with him. I disagreed that a, a, a prosecutor shouldn't have had eyes on it. And look... But frankly, I think a prosecutor would have come to the same conclusion. And I am very thankful that the state of Alabama didn't try to get that evidence and use it and prosecute it, because I'm absolutely convinced that they would have gotten not guilty verdicts and Jeopardy would have attached, and we could have never prosecuted these guys. So there was an incredible amount of evidence that came uh, that they developed, but there was no that, that tape I was talking about could not have been used at the time. We were able to law change. We were able to get it into evidence. And I really questioned whether they could have gotten a verdict with the climate we had in Alabama uh, in the 1960s. And so sometimes justice delayed, while there is some denial of justice and delay, justice delay doesn't have to be justice denied. Sometimes it just has to happen in order for the planets to line up just right to make sure that justice can finally be achieved.
2: As candidly as you can, Doug, describe to my audience how that climate you referred to of the 60s has evolved or been erased.
3: Well, I think it has evolved. I can't tell you that it has been erased. Um, In fact, I think it evolved and has somewhat in the last few years because of the partisan nature of our country and our state. It has devolved a little bit and we have backslid a fair amount. That's not to say that people come in with the same biases and prejudices that sit on a jury. I think that has really uh, evolved. But we still have a long way to go in my state and across this country with regard to equality, um, in race, religion, with sexual orientation. So it seems like every time we take a few steps forward, we take a couple of steps back. And we're continuing in this process. And I think we see it every day today. You know, in the 1960s, it was an attack on a race of people. Um, The African-American community was continually under attack just for simply trying to get their rights to vote and equality. Today, we see it in terms of Hispanics and other immigrants that are in this country trying to find a better life. Not to say that we should not do something to secure our borders. We should. And for anybody out there that thinks that Democrats or Doug Jones is for an open border, we're not. But yet we're becoming in a more diverse society. And now you've got the whole issue of LGBTQ community and trans community and those issues. And, and you see some of the same things happening with regard to those communities that we saw happening with the, with the, the backstops, the things that were the walls of oppression from civil rights back in the, in the 50s and 60s. So I'm hoping that our youth, in fact, I'm leaving here today to go give a speech to uh, the Youth of the Year program in Birmingham. And I'm hoping that the youth who have a different view of this world, just like I did in the 50s and 60s and my parents, hoping that the youth of the the world, the young folks today that live in a different climate, can help break down the, the barriers. Because there are still a lot of barriers to equality. Today.
2: That is the voice of Doug Jones. For our radio audience, we need to say farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming and listening on podcast platforms, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial. We will see you next week.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have?
3: Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in
1: every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
0: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett.
2: Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Doug Jones is our special guest. Doug was the guiding hand, if you will, of Katanji Brown Jackson in her confirmation process and successful Senate confirmation. Also a U.S. Senator, also a U.S. Attorney. So you have some experience in the political world. How bad is this political environment currently, Doug, for
3: Democrats? I don't know. If, well, I think it's bad for America, okay? You, you know, you, when you ask how bad is it for Democrats, I, you know, Democrats. Are going to struggle, I think. In, in the midterms right now, we were struggling to find messaging. But quite frankly, I think it's bad for America when um, we see the polarization that we have right now, where people are only listening to um, there's in their silos for news feeds. They're getting information. They're getting fed what they want to hear, as opposed to sitting down and talking to, uh, with people across the political spectrum. So yeah, I, I think Democrats are struggling. I think it's still a long way to go. And uh, all politics is local, uh, and I'm still hopeful. At least in terms of the Senate, we got some Democrats have very, very strong incumbents. Uh, They've also got very strong challengers for a number of open seats. So I don't think all is lost for Democrats. But we we're we're looking to climb uh, up right now because we've still we've clearly kind of dug ourselves in a hole. A lot of which is not our own making. But I think if people look at what is really going on in the world today and understand how this economy has improved, the jobs that have been created, how things and our global standing uh, in the world right now. I think those are all real positives. I'm not sure the president is getting that message out as strong as he should.
2: Would you like a position in the Biden administration?
3: Oh, I'm not gonna talk about that. Uh, Major, you know, I've known Joe Biden for 40 years. I met him when I was in law school. He's been a friend for many, many years. He, he escorted me when I was uh, sworn into the Senate. Uh, I was so happy to be involved in this process. I want to see some success of this administration and my friend Joe Biden. I don't know the best way to do that. Some Sometimes it's within, sometimes it's without. We just see how things go. Right now, um, I turned in my White House credentials the other day. I'm back with my law firm uh, and, the, and uh, doing some other political things. And I will try to promote uh, what I believe to be a successful Uh, biden administration
2: doug we have three threshold questions we ask every guest on the show uh take these in whichever order you prefer what is your most influential book in your life or one of the most influential books in your life and why favorite movie or all or one of your all-time favorite movies and if you're driving uh in the beautiful state of alabama or taking a long flight and you really want to enjoy some music what music are you most likely to listen to either by artist or by genre
3: You know, um, let's talk about books and movies. Mm -hmm. They're really the same, uh, to be honest with you. And I think like so many folks, and you referenced earlier, and I don't like the comparison to Atticus Finch, but clearly To Kill a Mockingbird was an influential book and an influential movie. Uh, I was on a plane recently uh, and had the time and watched To Kill a Mockingbird again. Uh, It is just a remarkable uh, book. Remarkable movie, but that book just so much captures, I think, the South at the time, but also how things can be right, things that can be wrong. Um, it, it's one of the most influential books, I think, of all time. And certainly both that and the movie uh, were incredibly influential, I think, on me. Um, in terms of music, um, I'm a classic rock and roll guy. You know, I'm a child of the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um when you're talking about Led Zeppelin and Cream and um, you know the the old line really great classic rock and roll that's what I listen to I've been on uh, lately on the radio they've got a a whole month dedicated to guitar greats and they're great from blues to Alvin Lee of 10 years after mm-hmm. you know the Woodstock generation yep that's what I turn on drives my family crazy when I turn on the radio and it's always on classic rewind or classic rock and roll. Um, I just love the old rock and roll music, but I, I I like a lot of different things, um, sometimes, but if that's my go-to and I've got autographed albums, I've got others here, I got a nice collection.
2: Doug, I'm so glad you said classic rock. And then the first band you said is led zeppelin which i consider the greatest rock and roll band of all time i get a lot of pushback on that you understand why and then you mentioned cream which is right behind all related in the same sort of uh bungalow if you will of uh, classic rock so i think that answer could not be more appropriate doug it's been a great pleasure hanging out with you talking to you next time you're in washington we'll get together whatever your future endeavors are or aren't with the biden administration we wish you the best thanks for hanging out with us
3: thanks major we'll see you thanks See
2: you next week, folks.
0: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.